Hello and welcome to the week six edition of Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Samini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. Well, a really disappointing loss in London, 27-20 to the very, very beatable Falcons. And now the Jets are one and four at their bye week. They have some time to rest, self-scout, and get ready for a trip to Foxborough to play the Patriots. This episode has a Patriots vibe to it. In the next segment, we'll talk to Seth Wickersham, whose new book, It's Better to Be Feared, provides an eye-opening look at the Patriots dynasty and some of the acrimony between the Jets and Patriots. Stay tuned for that. I am really looking forward to talking with Seth. But right now, let's talk about what went wrong in the UK. You can't spell yuck without you and a K, and there was plenty of yuck in the United Kingdom. The big takeaway, of course, is this team's inability to play offense in the first half. Five games, 13 points in the first half. That's 125 plays to be exact and only one touchdown. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. It's like for 30 minutes, it's an endless loop of three and outs, sacks, turnovers, penalties. The players are at a loss to explain it. And Robert Sala said his mission during this bye week is to find the answers. I'm going to bring up a name here, folks, and you're not going to like it, but please bear with me. The Jets have yet to score a single point on an opening drive, as you probably know. In 32 games under Adam Gase, now bear with me, the Jets actually scored 75 points on opening drives, which ranked 12th in the league. Now, they did nothing after that, but that's another story. We won't get into that. But at least they were able to score out of the box on a fairly regular basis. And I apologize for the Gase reference. But right now, the Jets can't do that. And I'm sure everyone is looking for a scapegoat. Now, offensive coordinator Mike LaFleur is the easy target because, let's face it, it's always easy to blame the play caller. And he definitely has to take his share of the blame. But to put it all on him is just overthinking it and I think reaching a little bit. Folks, this is what happens when you have a rookie quarterback. There's going to be growing pains, especially in this Shanahan version of the West Coast offense. It takes time to master this system, but even that might be overthinking a little bit. And, you know, like I said, on Sunday, Zach Wilson just simply missed some routine throws. And he wasn't helped by his receivers. First incompletion, Jamison Crowder, drop. Also a penalty on that play. Second incompletion, he throws behind Corey Davis and he drops it. Another costly drop by Davis. Third incompletion, play action bootleg to the right, bad throw to Ryan Griffin. Fourth incompletion, an interception, a bad throw to Keelan Cold, too far behind him against a cover two. Seventh incompletion. He short arms a screen to Crowder, which would have been a huge gain. Eighth incompletion. He doinks a pass, a screen pass, off the back of the head of right tackle Morgan Moses. Folks, these are routine plays. If Wilson converts them, it's a different story. Five games into Wilson's career, we have a narrative that's already formed. The kid can make the spectacular plays but he has trouble with the routine plays, or as Sala would call them, the boring plays. Now, I just want to say one thing about Sala. I mean, uh, LaFleur, I mean, like a lot of coaches, LaFleur scripts the first 15 plays. These are the plays they rep in practice, talk about the night before the game. These are the plays 
the players and the coaches supposedly feel comfortable with, plays they believe are going to work. Well, they're not working, which obviously points to some game planning, some scouting, and some preparation issues. That's in the big picture look. That's a big picture thing. I think, you know, but I still think when you narrow it down, you can't put it all on the floor. In the first half of games, Wilson has six interceptions and zero touchdown passes. Now, yes, LaFleur's job is to put Wilson in a position to succeed. And yes, you can quibble about play calls here and there. But I don't think this is a play calling failure. I did some research here. You know how I like these numbers. You know, like I said, the Jets have run 125 plays in the first half. Ideally, you want to have a run-pass balance, especially with a rookie quarterback. Well, the Jets have 71 dropbacks and only 54 runs. So, yeah, you can get on the floor for being a little pass-heavy. But it's different when you look at the first down tendencies. 29 rushes, 23 dropbacks. I mean, you have to put some reins on the kid. You just can't let him go out there and play schoolyard ball. That aspect of his game, which is great, you know, it has to come within the context of the system. You can't let him run it around and chuck it all over. And if you do that, you're going to see his interception total balloon. So I think, uh, you know, Wilson LaFleur has to make Wilson a better pocket passer. And right now he's not getting that done. Put him in a phone booth and he's Clark Kent. That's what the Falcons did. They contained him to the pocket. He had only six pass attempts outside the tackle box. Three of those were on design rollouts. When he gets out of the phone booth, he turns into Superman. LaFleur needs to spend the bye week figuring out ways to counter the ways defenses are attacking the Jets. But overall, I don't have a major problem with the way LaFleur is running the offense. Like I said, it's a matter of, Dar- I mean, not Darnold, we've been through that before, Wilson making some routine passes. What's troubling is that week after week, they can't run the ball. This this Joe Douglas offensive line is not creating creases in their outside zone scheme. George Fant and Moses graded out terribly against the Falcons, according to our ESPN metrics. You could certainly add more creativity to the running game. I mean, this is supposed to be a knockoff of the San Francisco offense, but where are the jet sweeps? Where are the, where's the misdirection? Now, maybe LaFleur is keeping it simple because of Wilson's inexperience. That very well could be a factor. Another factor, another issue I have is with personnel deployment. You guys know I love Elijah Moore. I've been raving about him since training camp, but he's a non-factor out there. He played 155 snaps so far, and he's got eight catches and 20 targets. I get it. You want to get him experience, but right now, the Jets have better receivers than Moore. Davis, Cole, Crowder, to name three. And Denzel Mims actually made a couple of plays against the Falcons, so maybe give him an expanded role. And another another problem I have, and I put this on the front office, the Jets have nothing at tight end. At sun, on Sunday, the tight ends had one catch for four yards. I know Tyler Croft was out, but I don't think that would have made a difference anyway. The Jets faced a lot of cover two in the first half, according to Salah, and the best way to beat cover two is to have a tight end work the middle seams. The Jets don't have that guy. And no, I'm not going to go on a Chris Herndon rant. He wasn't the answer, and he's been a huge bust with the Vikings. If I'm Joe Douglas, I'm looking to trade for a tight end based on the theory that a good tight end is going to help my rookie quarterback. O.J. Howard and Zach Hurts have been mentioned in trade speculation. The problem is both will be free agents after the season, and you don't want to give up a lot 
for a two or three month rental. Well, this is a good week for the Jets to have a buy. They need to hit the pause button, take a look in the mirror, and figure out how they want to proceed for the rest of the season. I'd like to welcome in an ESPN colleague, author Seth Wickersham, author of It's Better to Be Feared, a behind-the-scenes look at the New England Patriots dynasty. And that book will be released nationally on October 12th. That's Tuesday. And this should be of great interest for Jets fans because obviously it's the Patriots. There's a lot of acrimony between the Jets and Patriots over the years, a lot of juicy stuff between those franchises. Jets play the Patriots coming off their bye weeks. So we have a Patriots Jets centric podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Seth. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, bud. It's always good to be with you. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is really cool. Congratulations on the book. I mean, you're a very popular guy these days doing a lot of, a lot of media stuff, a lot of ESPN stuff must be pretty cool. It's, it is really cool. And it's also just, you know, even though I, I lived in that world and even though I've thought about it a lot, it still is just amazing, you know, how much interest there is in, in, especially Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and the Patriots and, and, you know, what they were able to accomplish. And so, I'm reminded of that with a project like this, even though I was obviously very interested in it myself too. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so, it's so fascinating because the Patriots, we've seen the great successes of their franchise. We've also seen a lot of, a lot of controversy along the way. And I think most of the listeners know what the Patriots about. It, it's sort of like the Kremlin. It's really hard to get information, whether out of fear or loyalty to the powers that be. So I'm really curious to know like how, how hard was it? I mean, you probably stumbled across some people who didn't want to talk to you. And I'm just fascinated by the reporting aspect because you are a great reporter. We've seen that over the years. How tough was it to get people to talk, you know, you know, some negative stuff about Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick and so forth? Thanks, man. I It is interesting because um, even opposing coaching staffs call the Patriots the Kremlin. <laughs> you know, it's actually I, I referenced that in the book. Um, but uh, it was. You know, I I think that like even though Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft didn't cooperate for this, I had spoke extensively with them over the years and felt like that I had a good base of knowledge to draw upon. And also, to my knowledge, none of them kept anybody from talking. There was nobody who I reached out to who said, I'm not going to talk because Bill won't let me talk or whatever it is. And so I felt like that, you know, even though... um I didn't get cooperation specifically for the book from the primary sources. I felt like that reaching out to other people and and trying to get insight into, you know, how Belichick worked or how that dynamic was, um, you know, after 20 years of doing this, I know most of the people anyway. And, it, you know, it it was challenging in its own way, but it wasn't like I was starting from scratch. I'm wondering, I, I know we've talked in the past, you know, you were kind enough to speak to my sports writing class at Syracuse University a few years ago. So I know you will, you conduct some clandestine interviews and, and parking lots and, and cars at all hours of the night. Uh, any interesting, I'm sure you probably had some uh, interesting interviews for this, you know, trying to get people here to, to uh, you know, dish some information. Yeah, that this is, was a little bit different because so much of the reporting was done during 2020 when just meeting with somebody was difficult. <laughs> it was totally not what I was expecting. Um, when I signed the book contract, it, you know, it was like early 2020 when I, when I started working on it and I was thinking, oh, I'm going to 
fly to meet this person. I'm going to be there for this game. I'll hang out in the locker rooms, you know, be the last one out for every Patriots game, whatever it was. And then COVID hit and, and, you know, access to everybody, not just NFL players was greatly curtailed, but I, I did fly for the book. Um, I did drive and meet people at their houses and we would just sit outside and, you know, talk for hours. And I met um, one person in a hotel ballroom. <laughs> that was kind of interesting because we, uh, we didn't want to get spotted, probably a little over paranoia on our part, but we didn't want to get spotted. So we went to a hotel and we went to the second floor and just talked in an empty ball ballroom. Um, so there was a little bit of that, but, um, you know, the, the vast majority of the interviews, I want to say at least 95% were on the record. And so it wasn't the type of thing where, um, you know, the person needed to hide me <laughs> or hide the fact that we were talking. I'm, you know, I've read a lot about the Patriots, a number of books, but this is interesting because like you said, this is not the, you didn't, you're telling the entire story. I mean, there've been books out that were really good books, but that were just through the eyes of, of Kraft or Brady. So this is a really objective look at what would happen, but I, I want to focus in on the jet. Obviously a lot of tension between those franchises through your reporting over the years, you know, can you just talk about that relationship between the jets and the Patriots and some of the things that have led to the bitterness over the years? Well, if anything, you know, we know how bad it is. And if anything, it's worse. It was worse than we knew, you know? And um, I think that if I were ever writing a standalone book on Bill Belichick, I would want to dive into his Jets years with everything that I had, because I think that that was some of the hardest years of his career. He, um, you know, he had been fired under extreme circumstances in Cleveland, landed, you know, under Parcells, and, and their relationship was just different with the Jets than it was during previous times when they really had like a really good working relationship together. Um, you know, Parcells would, would mock him in front of the entire team. And at one point he yelled at him over the headset when Belichick made a, uh, he called a blitz and Parcells disagreed with the call, but the blitz ended up working and, and Parcells yelled at him over the headset, something like, you know, that's why you're this effing genius, some genius you are. And you're, that's why you failed as a head coach and you'll fail again. And, you know, then you, of course, have the ending, which, you know, was just the strangest set of circumstances in 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 how, you know, Belichick took the job and then got out of the job. And, you, you know, Kraft ended up trading for him, which, as it turns out, probably was the greatest trade in NFL history. But, um, you know, as I write about extensively, especially when you get into Mangini leaving um, New England for the Jets, you know, things between those two teams got really bad. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right about the Parcells Belichick. I always felt the tension between that, those two when they were, they were together, of course, in 97 through 99 Belichick, he had some ridiculous title. It wasn't defensive coordinator. I forget what they called him, but it was, you know, it, but he was the defensive coordinator. There was, there was just, it was weird. Every, every time I talked to Bill, and I don't think in those days, coaches were really like speaking to the media like they do now, the assistant coaches. And there was always something there that bothered him about Parcells. What do you, do you think that was the main reason why he wanted to leave the Patriots? Because he just felt that Parcells, he had to get away from Parcells? Yeah, well, Bill would draw plays for you, right? Yeah, he did. Yeah. He'd draw plays for me on a, on a weekly basis on his little three by five file card with a number two pencil. But uh, yeah, so I think part of that was because he wanted to 
you know, maybe separate himself from Parcells and be a little defiant by talking to the media when he wasn't supposed to. But uh, yeah, was it you think he just wanted to work for Kraft or he just hated the Jets or was it a Parcells thing he wanted to get away from? I think that it was all of them. And obviously, like this, this has been reported upon a lot. So I don't know if I'm sharing anything new here. But, you know, you're talking about Bill Parcells, you know, a quirky guy in his own right. And at the time, you know, he he used to talk about retiring almost on an annual basis and then not do it. And so and I think contractually, both of them seem to have um the authority to make certain decisions once Belichick ascended to be the head coaching and set it into the head coaching role. So it was like, it was vague about what authority Belichick even had. And then you have the Parcells personality to go with it, where he's somebody who, you know, has a love-hate relationship with the game and clearly at that point might not have been willing to totally walk away. And if even if he told Belichick that, I'm not sure that Belichick quite believed him. You had the ownership mess on top of it all. And so I think that Bill, you know, was, you know, I think that he just saw something cleaner in New England. And I think he thought that even so, even though um, he was ruled against this, you know, by a judge, a judge ruled against him when when he tried to sue to get out of his contract, um, he thought it was a different job fundamentally because he clearly had authority over all football decisions in New England. Whereas with the Jets, it was murky. Yeah. Now that, that was 20 years ago, 21. Why does Belichick hate the Jets still so passionately now after something that happened 21 years ago? I don't know. There are mysteries within the man. And clearly what I try to write about in the book, it's not a, it it is a, I do try to look at the entire dynasty, but I, 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 I wrote it thematically. Whereas I try to get it, you know, what made Tom Brady and Bill Belichick so great. And, you know, if anything, what the cost of that greatness has been. And you look at Bill and his ability to hold, you know, I was going to say his ability to hold grudges, but one of his friends told me for the book, he doesn't hold grudges. He, he holds deaths <laughs> because with a grudge, there's a chance of reconciliation. And with the, and with death, there is no chance. And that's kind of where he holds the jets is, you know, I don't know why it, 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 it bothers him so much because was he treated poorly by the organization? I don't think so. I mean, he was treated poorly by Parcells. Right. But I don't think he was treated poorly. I don't think the Jets did him wrong, um, like the Browns did, for instance. Right. And so why he holds that death, it's a mystery, but it's one of many with him. Yeah, plus the Jets gave him a million-dollar bonus to stay for another year. And to the best of my knowledge, I don't think he ever paid it back, even though he left. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of, lot of stuff going on there. Now, about Spygate. Of course, that is a great stain on Belichick's record in 2007. Um, do you think Mangini was the actual whistleblower on that? No, I don't. I think that it was. I think that it was. It was layered. I mean, clearly Mangini knew that they were doing this, and he told them to stop. And he he had said it before that game. I you know well before that game. I know you guys do this. Cut it out. And Belichick refused to cut it out. When I'm when I say this, I'm talking about. Um, the illegal taping and Belichick refused to cut it out. And, and Eric at one point told people in the building, look, Bill's, he, he said this, he was like, Bill's pissing in my face. And so the Jets as an organization were the ones who blew the whistle on that. It wasn't necessarily Mangini. I think Mangini wanted the, the, the filmers removed from the field, but he didn't want them 
turned into the league, I think he knew more than anybody that the Jets were overmatched <laughs> in that ring going against Robert Kraft's New England Patriots. I mean, I think he, and it was a huge distraction for the team that he didn't want to deal with. I think that he wanted the, the cameraman off the field, but obviously there was some problems with the fact that Eric Mangini took the Jets job to begin with kind of showed Belichick at his most ruthless. They packed up Eric's office for him, went through all the files and then just mailed up a bunch of boxes. He was locked out of the Patriots building after he took the Jets job. But oh. Spygate, Spygate broke that relationship beyond repair. And I, you know, I, I do go extensively into it, but there was a funny moment where right after Spygate broke, you remember this, it, was, it, it broke on a, on a Sunday afternoon in 2007. So that Monday morning, Robert Kraft is trying to, I'm sorry, Roger Goodell is trying to um, get up to speed about what difference the spying and the, the filming made in games trying to like figure out seven years of illegal filming in a matter of hours. Obviously he was completely overmatched, but he calls around the, a lot of head coaches and GMs and they're just burying bill. And it's, it's the height of piousness, right? They're just like, bill is dirty. You've got to hit him with everything you've got. And he calls Mike Shanahan, who at the time was the coach of the Broncos and probably the second best coach in the NFL. And he was one of Belichick's friends. He respected him a lot as a coach. And when, when Goodell called Shanahan, rather than, join the masses who were piling on Belichick, Shanahan replied with something that was completely honest and blunt. He said, I wish that I had thought to videotape the signals. And he, he said, I'm disappointed in myself for not doing it. <laughs> and it was like a pretty sobering glimpse into the mindset of the, of the very best of the best and you know what lines they might be willing to blur to win football games. Yeah, it's fascinating. And that, that's one of the many great anecdotes you have in the book. And the uh, so when Mangini took the Jets job, like when most of us leave a job, we go back to the office, we pack up our stuff and say goodbye to people and, you know, share a few hugs and so forth. He wasn't even allowed to go back in his office and and say goodbye to the Patriots. No. And he he had his, his okay. key card access re re revoked, but he had already taken all of the material that he could off of his hard drive. Uh, <laughs> and so in a weird way, he did exactly what Belichick raised him to do and exactly what Belichick would have done if it was, you know, if the, if the shoes were on the other feet. Very interesting. Very interesting. You know, I, I did a story about a year ago on the 20 year anniversary of the, uh, you know, Belichick resigning. And some dead people told me that Belichick actually had someone request a lot of hard drive, a lot of floppy disks. When he got to New England, he wanted some stuff out of the Jets organization. And, and they're like, well, we're not going to send this stuff, you know, back, you know, false market up to Foxborough, you know. That, oh, my no gosh. Way. And after after all the drama, after weeks of drama of him basically suing to get away from the Jets, you know, he's like, hey, do me a solid and send me this stuff. Yeah, like that's going to happen. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's and then Spygate happens and it just shatters the relationship. Now, the, the, you know, my favorite anecdote in the book is it got so bad between Mangini and Belichick that I, I want you to pick it up at the at the 08 league meetings. It's it's so, you know, richly reported in detail and it got a little nasty there, didn't it, Seth? <laughs> well, remember, Mangini wasn't just, you know, the one who had learned the most from Belichick. He wasn't just the favored son in New England. It was like he was an actual son. And their relationship is well documented about how Bill gave him his start in Cleveland. And he was from Wesleyan, just like Belichick. 
And when Eric Mangini and um, Julie Mangini, his wife, got married, Belichick actually read a poem at their wedding. And one of their kids, you know, middle name is William after Bill. So there was a lot of friction after Spygate and just the way that the two of them had behaved. I mean, obviously, Belichick had turned the postgame handshake into this media event. Right. You know, only Belichick could do that. Um, so there at the, the, the league meetings in 2008 in Palm Beach, and there was a dinner for head coaches and their wives. And afterwards, everyone was kind of mingling. And Julie Mangini bumps into Belichick and Julie Mangini is a very effusively friendly person. And she, you know, says hi to him and kind of tries to smooth over this relationship that had gone south fast and and he blew her off. And so she goes back to Eric and she was upset and he was, he just hit the roof and it was like enough is enough. And he comes charging across the room at Belichick and he yells, Hey, Bill F you only he didn't say F. And two coaches held him back. Otherwise, they think that he would have taken a swing at Bill and wow. probably connected. <laughs> yeah, that, that's just that's mind boggling, because as you said, you know, people just how close they were. You know, they were just extraordinarily, you know, Eric lost his dad when he was a kid. I think in some ways, maybe he looked to Bill as as kind of a father figure. So that's that, that's a pretty profound incident there. Um, you know, I, I interviewed Mangini. He does a football camp for kids every year in, in Hartford every summer. It's a, it's a great event. They get t- hundreds of kids. And I interviewed him in 2017 because it was the 10 year anniversary of Spygate. And he spoke to me about how he'd like to reconcile with Belichick someday that that would mean a lot to him. Do you think that ever happens? I don't know, but it just shows that, you know, Belichick's just different. I mean, like I said earlier, Quoting his friend, he doesn't hold grudges, he holds deaths. And, you know, what does that do to a human being? Why would you want to have so many relationships be the casualty of of this winning over the years? And, you know, so many meaningful relationships. Um, And, uh, you know, I don't know if it'll ever happen or not. I obviously know that camp, you know, very well, too. I think I've been to it. But one of the things I have been to it, um, one of the things that I also wrote about in the book, and this goes back to Mangini's days with the Jets, is not only like one of the most interesting things about Belichick is how he trained his young coaches. And he would pull these guys when they were right out of college and work them to death and pay them very little. But they would get this phenomenal look into football. No task was too big or too small for them. And he would give these guys this amazing education into football and what it means to to try to do this at a high level. And yet when those guys left, and really Eric was the first one, when they left to go do this on their own, they really struggled to get him out of their head. (laughs) It was like Belichick was such a dominating presence, not only in the culture with the way that he acted and the way that he dressed, but he was a presence within the lives of these coaches that when they were out on their own, they almost couldn't think for themselves. They would hear these words coming out of their mouth that sounded exactly like what Bill Belichick would say. And they knew it. And yet it was the best way that they knew and they couldn't change. And I thought that it was one of the most interesting things because I I ended up writing about Mangini when he was with the Browns. He had been Mm -hmm. fired by the Jets, obviously, where he had two winning seasons in three years, but he had just alienated the entire building. And Mm -hmm. often with by acting like a Belichick knockoff, like Josh McDaniels did, and 
you know, um, Matt Patricia years later and Scott Pioli. And so I wrote about Eric when he was with the Browns trying to be himself and what that was like to try to take a Belichick type program and apply it using your voice and how hard that was. And I think that it was one of the chapters that I enjoyed writing the most because it took one of those things that we take for granted in the media, how a coach finds his own voice mm-hmm. and really tried to put it under the, the the microscope and learn how difficult that can be when you were coming out of New England. Yeah. And I think Eric has admitted that if he had a chance to do it over again, which is not going to happen because he's had two shots at it, he wouldn't try to be more himself. And he was too much like Bill and you just can't be like Bill. It's, it's really hard to, to be, but he's, he totally was. I mean, it was like, right. I remember covering like right down to the minute, like their, their, the structure of their practices, their, their day schedule, everything was like the Patriots. And he tried to be that tough guy and, you know, that disciplinarian tough guy. And it, it's, it's hard to pull off. You can't imitate genius when it's, you know, kind of a demented genius like Belichick's. Yeah. For, for years, he used the same letter that Belichick used for their off-season program, the exact same one. He would just sub in Jets or Browns for Patriots. And he, at one point, decided to redo it and try to just do it in his voice, even though the schedule didn't change himself. And it's like those types of little moments where you're trying to, you know, distance yourself from this program that's phenomenally successful, but sort of tailor-made to withstand any losses except for the head coach and the quarterback and maybe Ernie Adams. Um, you know, you're trying to take all that and turn it into something that repl- that you can use and win games with. And, you know, nobody else had these problems. Bill Walsh's coaching tree, Mike Holmgren's coaching tree, those were phenomenally successful and widespread. And, you know, they would take a lot of what they learned from Bill Walsh, obviously his playbook, Mm-hmm. Um, primary, but but they didn't have that problem. They didn't have the pro- Mike Holmgren never struggled to coach within his own personality. And mm-hmm. when John Gruden left Mike Holmgren, he didn't struggle either. Or neither did Andy Reid. Whereas like all these Belichick guys always have. And why that's the case, I found profound and deeply psych- psychological, and really wanted to get into in the book. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating. Just to touch on, you know, the main theme of your book, a lot of it, of course, is Brady and Jet fans are thrilled that Brady is no longer tormenting them, although they do play them later in the year. So that'll probably be a rough game for the Jets. But um, how much do you think it burns Belichick within right now to see Brady achieving so much success in Tampa? And obviously the Patriots are going through a difficult time right now. How much do you think it, it galls him that, uh, you know, the quarterback, you know, his old quarterback is achieving more success than he is. Yeah. And it was just, it was more than just Belichick who decided to open the door for Brady to walk through. It was Robert Kraft too. I mean, he told owners at the Super Bowl when the Chiefs played the 49ers, you know, we want Brady, but we don't want him until he's age 45. And Brady felt like that he had earned the benefit of the doubt, a leap of faith to play until he was age 45. And I mean, the two people who should have known better than anybody, Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick, should have known better than anybody than to underestimate Tom Brady did just that. And look what happened. And, and they, they commissioned, they, they conducted a, a private like uh, study investigation on transcendent athletes, which you have in the book. Mm-hmm. That seems 
let's, that seems extreme that they would go to that extent to try to look into it. And yet they still went the other direction. Well, yeah. So Belichick commissions like a lot of studies that he delegates to executives or to coaches. This one was a psychological one where they were trying to look at, you know, what made transcendent athletes and see if they could figure out methods to apply in their own scouting for players coming out of the draft or free agency. And all of the ones that, so they interviewed Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and Tiger Woods and some of these people. And all of them kind of had the same traits where it was very Belichickian, you know, where this massive ability to hold grudges and, and work from a place of rage. And with Brady, it was a little different. It wasn't that he was, you know, immune to that, to the cliched chip on the shoulder, but he seemed to be at the best when he was in a supporting environment, supportive environment that didn't, you know, require manipulation and fear and all of these things that are kind of Patriot way hallmarks. And, um, and, and so it, it doesn't surprise me at all. If you look at that, he left new England and he goes to Tampa where he's, you know, not only the quarterback, but he's the de facto offensive coordinator. He's a pseudo executive. And his trainer, you know, he works for a head coach who makes his assistant coaches cocktails after the game. Oh. Like he went from Harvard Law to Florida State. And his oh. trainer, Alex Guerrero, who was partially you know, banned from part of the building by Belichick, Belichick would make resoundingly clear that Alex Guerrero did not work for the Patriots, has an office in the Tampa Bay Bucks building, and he got a Super Bowl ring last year. Oh, yeah, amazing. And I love Belichick's response last week when the Patriots media were they were grilling him about, you know, aspects of your book. And he said, you know, I don't even know this guy, Wickersham. <laughs> and you actually do. You, you've interviewed him. Oh, yeah. Many times. Many times. Yeah. That's that's Bill. Bill being Bill. Well, Seth, I can't thank you enough. Jet fans, you want to get this book. It's uh, it's called It's Better to Be Feared. It's a behind the scenes look at the Patriots dynasty, the good, the bad, the ugly. And of course, a lot of Jet stuff with all the um, tension and, and backbiting between the two organizations. You, you definitely want to uh, get it. It is released nationally on October 12th, Tuesday. Great reading as we get ready for Jets Patriots uh, in, a, in a week or so. Seth, can't thank you enough. Really appreciate it. Thanks, bud. And it's Twitter time. First question from at Decepticon 16. How come Joe Douglas hasn't stepped in to tell them to play Denzel Mims? His playmaking Ability can help stretch the field and open things up and make it easier for Wilson. What are we doing here? Well, Maximus, uh, interesting question. I don't think it's Joe Douglas's job to make the lineups. In fact, contractually, it's Robert Sala's job. He has control over the players that play. I don't think Joe Douglas wants to overstep his bounds and also create an issue, friction with his head coach. That's the last thing he wants to do. Now, do I think he has made maybe gentle suggestions, especially this past week, to play Mims? Yeah, I think he probably has done that, but I don't think he's going to walk in the room and tell Sala to play Denzel Mims. I think he is going to leave that up to his head coach, as he should. Next one from at Smoke42. Uh, what is different about Elijah Moore from camp to now? I've never seen so much hype from both local and national media in minicamp and training camp, and he's made absolutely no impact. Was everyone wrong about him? 
Well, I was one of those people, Chris. I was really hyping Elijah Moore. He had a, a fantastic offseason, a good training camp. But uh, no, we were not wrong about him. Let's look at a couple of factors. First of all, he injured his quad in training camp. He missed the preseason games. That was a big setback. And secondly, I think he's playing out of position. You know, he was a very, very productive slot receiver at Ole Miss. The Jets are playing him on the outside, I think partly at a necessity because they have other slot receivers, but he's a better slot receiver. I looked it up. He's been playing outside 73% of the snaps. He's got four catches on the outside, four catches in the slot. Uh, He's not nearly as productive as he should be, but you got to remember, he missed time with the injury. He's playing out of position, and he's a rookie, and it just takes time for some rookies to get acclimated. Uh, So there are a lot of factors going into that. The coaching staff absolutely loves him. I still think he has a very, very bright future. Next one is from at cast 450. Is Zach going to actually get better? I ask because when I see his mechanics, I see a mess, especially his footwork on the short to intermediate throws. Well, it's a fact, Cast 450. His short to intermediate throws are not accurate right now. Wilson is completing only 61% of his passes that travel 10 yards or less. That ranks 27th in the league. Now, I should note that two other rookies, Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, are right below him, completing less than 61%. But I also should note that Mac Jones, another rookie, is first in the league at 77%. Could you imagine if Zach Wilson were completing close to 77% of his passes? The Jets' offense would be doing much better in the first half. you got to make the layups. I don't think it's a mechanical problem. I mean, occasionally he gets a little out of whack, but his mechanics, for the most part, are very, very good. I think better than what Sam Darnold had coming into the NFL. The coaches are constantly teaching him about the importance of keeping your feet and your eyes aligned with your target. When it gets out of whack, the ball gets thrown inaccurately. You saw that on a few occasions against the Falcons. Next, from at Green 25 The Jets ended up proactively giving JFM a fat extension. Who's next in line for gangrene? Uh, You're right, Paul. They gave him a four-year, $55 million extension. I know on last week's podcast, I led you guys to believe that that wasn't going to happen. I apologize for that. I was making that comment based on information I was getting from JFM's camp. That deal came together very, very quickly and good for JFM. I think it's a good deal for the Jets. It's proactive, like you said. It's uh, It sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. But if it goes bad wrong, they can get out after a year pretty easily with minimal cap implications. So I think it's a good deal for both parties. And we know this about Joe Douglas. He likes to ascend, He likes to reward young ascending players, guys who are still on their first contracts. The two guys who fit that description are Foley Fadakasi and Braxton Berrios. Now, I, I would keep the eye on Fadakasi because he plays a lot. He's a leader. He might be one of the better leaders on the team. I think they really, really like his character. And uh, we know how they like to pour money into the defensive line and the offensive line. So Foley Fadakasi would, to me, would be the next guy to watch. From at S. Pechdemalji, 
And this is Stefan's question. Uh, it's uh, should Lafleur go back to the booth and have Kavanaugh be his voice on the sideline? Play calling isn't bad, but it might give the OC a better look at the game. The OC and the quarterback slow starts are not mutually exclusive. Interesting thought. Uh, I think you're onto stuffing something there, Stefan. I think when they sit down during the bye week to study this offense and do a self scout, I think that will be one of the things they look at. Should they put Lafleur up in the booth? That's where he, I think, prefers to be. That's where he said he preferred to be before we got into training camp. And then, um, you know, during the preseason, he was on the field. It went well. Wilson feels very comfortable with Lafleur on the sideline. That is the most important thing, according to the coaches. They want to give him that comfort level. So I, I'd say I'd be a little surprised if he goes back to the booth, but I think it's something you have to absolutely have to explore. Matt Cavanaugh has been here now for a couple of months. I'm sure he feels a lot more comfortable than he did when he first got here, and uh, that would not be a bad idea. But like I said, I'd be a little surprised if they go in that direction. And that wraps up this episode of Flight Deck. Thanks again to Seth Wickersham, author of It's Better to Be Feared, Great Stuff on the Patriots Dynasty. That has a national release date of Tuesday, October 12th. You absolutely want to pick that up and read about it, about the Patriots, and a lot of Jet stuff in there as well. Thanks to my producer, Jeff Scopin. Enjoy your bye weekend, Jets fans. Relax. Check out the fall foliage. Try not to think about football for a little bit and be ready to go next week. Next week is Patriots Week. We'll talk to you then on Flight Deck. Flight Deck.